So if you haven't been with us, we've been going through Genesis 1. Uh, first we started at one verse, then we did the full day, then we did a couple days, then we did a couple more days, and we got to Genesis chapter 6, and last week we looked at that man is made in the image and likeness of God, mankind, male and female, he made us. And as we talked about Amagio Dei, we were created with purpose, that God, because he made us, he determines our function, he determines our gender, he determines our value, he determines our purpose. We were made for him. We were made to be in relationship with God. We were made to reflect the creator, and we can only do this through faith in Jesus Christ, because we, we know that though we are created for God because of sin, there's something in between us. There's a broken relationship that needs to be fixed, and it's only fixed by Jesus' death on the cross for our sins, his burial, his resurrection, and those who put faith and trust in him can have a right relationship with the God that they were made for. And so I hope this, this evening, as we continue to look through this passage of, of the part of day six, we'll have greater clarity of our purpose that God's word by his spirit applied to our hearts will continue to like z just zero in on why did he make us? Again, also the whole time we're going through Genesis, my desire, my heart, my prayer for all of us is that we would build a biblical worldview, that we would see things, understand things from a mind informed and shaped by God, that we would see the majesty of our creator ever increasing. That was my desire as we open up God's word. If you want to stand with me as we read God's holy scripture. Genesis 1:26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on earth. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth. And every tree with seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. May God bless his word to our souls this evening. You can have a seat. So th this sermon I've titled, Amagio Day: God's Purpose Becomes Clear. Again, I, I don't have original names. <laughs> I don't want to say, you know, spend time thinking of something really creative. I just wanted, like, this is what this text is going to be about. So that's what I want us to look at. But interesting, this evening, first I'm going to start from the finish uh, to kind of frame what we're going to talk about. So if you want to look at, with me at verse 31 first... We're going to look at the end first. 
And actually, as you look at verse 31, I'm just going to bring your attention in, in Scripture. I've been pointing this out all along, but if you haven't been here with us, on day one of creation, Genesis 1-5, most, all, all our translations are most say the first day, and it should say a first day. God was defining through Moses who wrote Genesis that this was a literal 24-hour period. So, ah, first day. And if, if you would notice on, in verse 8, it should say, ah, second day. And every day after that, it says a third day, a fourth day, a fifth day. And it's not till you get to Genesis 1.31, it says specifically, the sixth day. So if we were reading in Hebrew, you'd see this marked difference between every other day and why when you get to the sixth day it's the sixth day it's meant to highlight it circle it exclamation mark something's going on on this day that has not happened on any other day before and what that is is God created mankind in his image and likeness wants to highlight that for us set apart from the rest the sixth day and also as we'll look at next week he also does that for the seventh day what I want to do, though, is, is just set up the framework. If, if we were walking through an art exhibit, and maybe no one ever really would, but if, before we were about to enter into, say, a museum, I was like, this is the most amazing art in the whole world. This is the best of the best. This is absolutely fantastic. Before we walk through the door, so then everything you'd see after, you're like... This, I guess this is the best. I guess this is it. And I want you to notice at the end of verse, or in verse 31 of Genesis 1, what does God say? God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. It was very good. Every other time, every other day was good. Everything God makes is good, and on day six, it's all finished, it's complete. He's, this is very good. And so everything that we're going to be talking about through, as we look at the other uh, verses, is, is very good. I want you to just keep that in the back of your mind. That's the framework we're looking at here in Scripture. At this time, right, it's complete. There's no sin. There's no death. There's no sickness. There's no pain. There's no suffering. I want us also to see God defines what is good. His creation is, is good. It's very good. What God says about humanity and what he says to them is very good. I just want to take note of that, and then we'll look at what does he say to his creation. I think that's, that's actually something huge. I'm going to keep pointing out a, a good biblical worldview. We want to see what does God say about humanity? What does he say to humanity? And it's very good what he says about them and, and to them to do. So if you want to have that framework with me. Look back at verses 27 to 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them, and God blessed them. And God blessed them. I want us to see here God's blessing. God's blessing is what? It, it is good. God's blessing is always good. Take note in Scripture, anytime... It speaks of God's blessing or someone being blessed by God. It's always good. We should always take note, like, what does God say is a person who's blessed by God? So just thinking, like, Psalm 1 said, blessed is the man, like man mean man or woman. Blessed is the man who does not, you know, stand in the seat of mockers or sit at the seat of sinners. 
But, but that man delights himself in the law of the Lord. And on that law, he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water. He says, blessed is, is that person who does that. Or just another thing I want to bring your attention to in, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 5 to 12, we know it as the Beatitudes, the blessings. On the Sermon on the Mount, this is how Jesus opens up. Starting, sorry, in verse 3, Matthew 5, verse 3. Just take note of each one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Is that you? Is that me? Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? If you do, God says you will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. Isn't that interesting? Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. Not just for any reason. Utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account because you have the name of Christ. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who went before you. I, just, I want you to take note in scripture anytime you see like God says this person's blessed like what do they do? There's a few examples we should take to note. But if we look here back in Genesis and God bless them, and what's the first thing God says to them? And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Remember that? That's very good. <laughs> be fruitful and multiply. Is it reproduce? Make babies. And of course, as we look at chapter 2, that's in the context of marriage between a man and a woman. That's where that being fruitful and multiplying is, is to take place. But think about how true this statement is to mankind fulfilled within Genesis alone. One commentator says this, the focus in Genesis is on the fulfillment of the blessing of fruitfulness. The command, like others in Scripture, carries with it implicit promise that God will enable man to fulfill it. It's repeated to Noah after the flood in 9 verse 1. The patriarchs too are reminded of this divine promise. The genealogies of Genesis 5, 9, 11, 25, 36, 46 bear silent testimony to its fulfillment. As in every time they're listed, all these people, you know, so-and-so verse so-and-so verse, like humans are being fruitful and multiplying. And then this, this guy also notes uh, Jacob on his deathbed at the end of Genesis. In Genesis 48, verse 4, Jacob says this, right? He, he went to Egypt. His 12 sons have children, their wives. And Jacob says this, Behold, as God appeared to him, God said to him, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply. I'll multiply you and I'll make you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And Jacob was fruitful, and he multiplied. And I just want to bring your attention, even Exodus, just the next book. In Exodus chapter 1, 
Verse 7, it says, The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so the land was filled with them. So we can just see God's promise, be fruitful and multiply, and he did. He called humans to do it, and they were. The command to be fruitful, again, it is good. It is good. There's a spectrum on how people understand this. I've heard some say, uh, you're not trusting in God if you limit the amount of children you can have. You're not trusting in God. And then the other spectrum, there's some Christians who say, um, you should stop having children. Like, don't you know there's ways to prohibit this? And so there's a spectrum between the two. And I would just say this, um, may God give you wisdom. Like if, if you're in a place where you're starting to have children and think about how many, may the Lord give you wisdom and he will. You're like, God, how many children are you desiring for us to have? And so may God give you wisdom in that. And I think there's also wisdom uh, in thinking about birth control. Not all birth control are created equally. And understand what each one does and some Christians uh, shouldn't take. And so use, use wisdom in that. But notice it says, be fruitful and multiply. It's, it's very good. I'm just going to keep highlighting that. This is a, a biblical worldview that men and women coming together in the context of marriage and reproducing, having babies, that is a very good thing. So being fruitful and multiply, it implies what? The children are a gift, like something to celebrate, right? That's why we have birthdays. We want to celebrate that we're, our ability to be fruitful and multiply. So I just want to also point this out. Then there's our secular worldview that's thinking of like having kids, having children. And they say, no, no, just pursue your career. Go see the world, build your portfolio. You know, just live your best life. Now maybe, maybe sometime in the future, maybe after that, maybe have a kid. They're a burden though. They're weight, like a little ball and chain. Like there's this attitude towards children in our society. It's very negative. I'm, that's a secular worldview. Even one of the excuses people have, like, ah, oh, children, they're so expensive. I remember I was talking to someone, and they had one child, and I was like, okay, are you going to have another, like, are, you know, are you going to have any more children? They're like, well, maybe. But, you know, like, kids, kids are just so expensive. And these, you know, both parents were working. They had lots of money. I'm like, what are you talking about? You're making a decision based to have another child because kids are expensive? And I, I think that's a lie that our world tells us. Well, that's the one thing. We don't need everything. Can I get amen to that? <laughs> but we, we want to give our kids everything. But that's the thing. You can have more of them, and they don't need to all have the everything in this world. So that's kind of a secular worldview, but think of a biblical worldview. I just want to draw your attention to Psalm 127, verse 3. It says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruits of the womb, a reward. Like children, again, are a blessing. But the ability to be fruitful and multiply, though, is, is from God. Some people can't physically have children. They, they can through adoption, through foster care, ability to, to have children, to love and to nurture. 
You can also, in a sense, have spiritual children through sharing your faith and, and seeing people come to Jesus Christ, discipling him that way. But when it comes to the ability to have kids, some very godly people can't have children. And for whatever reason, some people who seem to do, be doing anything but following the Lord can have like tons of children. And we ask, why? Why is that? And we just have to trust God. Your ways are above our ways. We don't understand that, that some can't and some can. God's ways are above our ways. Also, I just want to point out again, showing that it's it's very good, very good, the ability to be fruitful and multiply. But there's this, there's this again, this worldview that we have kind of being pushed upon us. The the world is overpopulated, and kind of like this, the that worldview. If I were to summarize it from this this website, Population Research Institute, you can go on there and look at lots of stats about what the population of the world is actually like. It says the number of people on Earth will exceed the carrying capacity of the planet, like this is the mindset, in the foreseeable future, leading to economic or social collapse and that actions ought to be taken to curb population growth. That's the mindset that's being put upon us. And I, I think some of it was shaped by uh, this guy I'm just going to tell you about. He, he wrote in uh, 1968, his name was Paul Elric, and I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. He wrote a book called The Population Bomb. And he predicted there's going to be a battle to feed all of humanity. And in the 1970s, the world will under, undergo famine. Hundreds of millions of people are going to starve to death. And he, he kind of shaped this idea, and everyone's like, well, like, it's going to be catastrophic. Interesting enough, he was totally wrong in all his predictions. But yet still, in 1990, for having his promoted a greater public understanding of environmental problems, Ulrich received a MacArthur Foundation Genius Award. <laughs> so all his predictions, it's all going to end, we're all doomed, and none of it happened. And he received a reward for that. And that type of thinking is actually pressed into our society. As we think about having kids, the reality is most countries have had a declining birth rate since the 1950s. Again, maybe baby boomers had, baby boomers had a lot of children and, and no one competed necessarily against them. But part of the increase in population is people just live longer. So people are actually having less children, but people are living longer. And so that's increased the population. But the reality is everyone, most countries, it's all declining. And in the next like 30 years, it's actually going to substantially change because nobody's really having enough children to reproduce themselves. Like in Canada, I think the average is, the latest stat is like for two people having 1.47 children. Of course, you can't have 0.47 of, of a child. But so the reality is we're not even replacing ourselves with children because everyone, I believe, is kind of buying into this like it's overpopulated. We're going to doom the earth. But again, what, is, what does the Lord say? What does it say in Genesis to man and woman created in the image and likeness of God? Be fruitful and multiply. So I, I just want to show you those two competing worldviews. As Christians, do we believe God? Do we believe being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth is, is very good? So we see God's blessing there. I also want to see in, in verses 29 to 30, God's provision. 
And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. Victor Hamilton said this, What God creates, he preserves. What he brings into being, he provides for. I've talked about this before, but I'll say it again. So fruits and vegetables are, are, what, are very good. Amen? Someone? So I'm like, nah. I see these questioning looks. And I already talked in depth about that when God in day three made, like, made the plants and, and, and the fruit and all the shrubs and, and talked about just fruits and vegetables are actually an apologetic for God. Just how amazing the different size, the different shapes, the different colors, the different tastes again, point to a creator. Like, they're so distinctly different. It's amazing. But I already got excited about fruit one time. I'll hold back <laughs> this time. But I want to see that, like, fruits and vegetables, God made them for us, and we would be wise to eat more of them. <laughs> the nutrients and vitamins, I just, I don't know if you used to see, like, those food pyramids or else, like, a plate. They show you, like, what you should have on your plate, and, like, half of it was, like, vegetables. And we're all like, nah, we all question that. We're like, ah, I don't think that's science. But, <laughs> but, but God gave us fruits and vegetables. We should take in more of that. You know, we're all maybe we're taking like vitamins and different nutrients, but a lot of those things we can get if we eat the proper amounts of fruits and vegetables. So that's like the big takeaway from the sermon. You're like, man, I'm supposed to eat fruits and vegetables, I guess. I want to say really, this is one big thing I want you to see there. God made us and he takes care of us. God made us and takes care of us. He didn't create humans and said, okay, now go figure it out. You, you know, like, okay, now you're on your own. Try to survive. Like, I don't know if any of you seen any of those, like, uh, survival shows where they drop people off in, like, a forest somewhere. And like, how long can they survive? I would die within a few hours, I think. <laughs> right away. God didn't do that. He created Adam and Eve, and here's the fruits and vegetables you need to survive. He created them and then provided for them. That's what God does. He doesn't leave us to our own. I want us, you to see that. He gives humans life and also provides for them the ability to stay alive. Just think about that. Just take that, you know, into the New Testament. He calls Christians to live holy lives. <laughs> different, set apart from anyone else, to be loving even your enemies. We, we can't do that. But then he gives us his Holy Spirit. So we can live differently. We can love people, not of our own strength, but of his. So he, whatever he, God calls us to do something, he also provides the ability to do it. So he calls humans to live, and he also provides food for them. And I don't know if you if this clued in or if you thought about this, but he made humans vegetarians at first. I see a lot of sad looks on people's faces. No, I'm joking, I don't. But but if we if we know, we'll talk more about it. But in Genesis 9, verse 3, after the flood, God said this to Noah and his sons and their wives: every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. And all the people said, Amen. 
So God provides food. First, it was fruits and vegetables after the flood, also animals as well for us. Again, I just want to, there's a, a kind of a, a worldview that's out there that says, actually, we don't have enough food. There's like maybe not enough food for one another. That the same author I talked to, well, that's kind of what he was referencing. Like as the population grows, like we are not able to feed all these mouths. One commentator, Sephardi, said this, Troubled as the world may be today, it is uncontestably less poor, less unhealthy, and less hungry than it was 30 years ago, even as the population has grown so much. He said this, this resourcefulness that humans has, and we're going to talk about dominion of subduing things, includes finding new ways to provide energy and methods of growing far more food and far less land with far less work. That's the amazing thing. As, as the population has grown so much, we've been able to grow so much more food, become more, more resourceful, the ability to reproduce it. So again, just that's, that's not true. And the fact that God he provides all the food that we need, all the sustenance we need, we should always thank God for the food on our table. This is like a really easy applicational point, you know, in the Lord's Prayer. Like, thank you, Lord, for our daily bread. And, and, you know, in a day and age, we're like, okay, I worked. I got paid. I got the money in my pocket. I went to the store. I bought the food. We cooked it. We put it on the table. But it's like you have breath in your lungs because God allowed that to happen. Even as some of us know, the ability to taste can be taken away. And even tasting food, that's a gift from the Lord. And so anytime we're actually able to just sit down for a meal, we should, like, thank you, God, that I have food on my table. Whether it's just bread and butter or it's like an actual, like a vast meal. So friends, God, he made us, but he also provides for us. And as we're eating what he has put on our table, we should give him thanks. We should give him thanks. So we see God's blessing. We see God's provision. Now I'm going to go back and look at God's call. In verse 26, God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. In verse 28, God kind of reiterates it. After he says, Brief fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So what is this dominion? Like to rule over, to lead, to direct, to control. And again, that's almost a synonym to subdue it. So first the call were to rule over the animals. Have you ever been in a zoo? and seeing a human in a cage. <laughs> no, no you have not. Have you ever been to a zoo and seen a lion in a cage? A lion, and what, what's another term for the lions? They're called the king of the jungle. Because they're like the top of the food chain, arguably hippos actually might be, but they don't get that term for them. But the, I've seen a lion in a cage, like mankind is over the king of the jungle. Humans were meant to rule over the animals. As we see even for Adam and Eve and for uh, what God had intended, they were to use the domesticated animals given to them to work the ground. An ox, a horse, 
have cows and goats for milk. And then after the flood, animals for food. We, we are over them. And so even as we consume them for food, though, we are to do it with respect. As we, we kill them just to, to feed ourselves, we're not to just do it haphazardly and just kill a bunch of animals for no reason whatsoever. Just thinking of like pets or livestock, there's a proverb, Proverb 12:10. it says, whoever is righteous has regard for the life of his beast, but the mercy of the wicked is cruel. Whoever is righteous has regard for the life of his beast. We should hold this ourselves, the way we treat animals, and also teach our children, the next generation after us. As, as believers created in the image and likeness of God, we're to treat animals with respect, with kindness. That's what it says that the righteous do. I want us again to think of the worldview implications. We are to care for animals, but we are not equals with animals. The thing is, the reality in our society, you can get in more trouble for sometimes killing an animal than you can unborn children. This is the world in which we live. And I remember a few years ago, uh, this guy came from the States and he was hunting bears with, with a spear. And he filmed it, which is amazing if you think about it, hunting a, a bear with a spear. Like, but he was like not just like thrown it by accident. He was trained and knew what he was doing and had a license and got a ticket. But he took a video and people were just up in arms that he killed this bear, even though he was legally allowed to. But, but we kill, again, I talked about last week, over about 100,000 babies a year in Canada, unborn children, and there's nothing. And so we have this really messed up society where, where animals are actually over and above humans. Again, that's, that's not a, a biblical worldview. We are called to rule over the animals. In verse 26, we see again we have the dominion over the animals, but also over all the earth. And in verse 28, and we are to subdue. We are to fill the earth and subdue the earth. And what does that mean, subdue? To overcome, to conquer, to control an environment. And Victor Hamilton points out, probably what is designated here is the settlement and agriculture. Subdue the land in chapter 1 probably refers to what is said in chapter 2-5. To till, to work the ground. Or when Adam is brought into the garden in 2-15, to work the ground. That could be subduing the land. One commentator says this, Man is to be steward of the earth. He is to bring the material world and all of its varied elements into the service of God and the good of mankind. The command to subdue the earth is particularly, is actually part of God's blessing on mankind. Created in the image of God, Adam and Eve were to use the earth's vast resources in the service of both God and themselves. And commentator Henry Morris says this, This twofold commission to subdue and have dominion to conquer and rule embraces all productive human activities, science and technology, research and development, theory and application, study and practice and so forth are various ways of expressing these two concepts. So it's, it's massive in terms of its application. Just think of just cultivating the earth, just having a garden, shoveling snow, building homes, climbing a mountain, raising cattle. 
bringing order into the wild, insect control, building a fire, getting electricity from a river flowing, creating an engine to even run on fossil fuels would be subduing the earth. Again, I want you to, to point out these worldview implications. We are to rule over it, but we're not to worship it. We're to rule over it and not to worship it, but the same can be said of the animals. If you think some people, some countries, say in India, they, they'll worship the, the cows and people are starving, but they can't sacrifice the cows because of their belief in reincarnation, like this could be a relative. So they're hungry, the cows are there. Or maybe the mice are running into the field and destroying their crops, but they can't deal with the mice because, again, of their, their belief. So we can raise animals above us in worship, or we can raise land above us in worship. If you go to different, some often in mountain towns, Camor and Banff, there's a spirituality that's very present there of, of Mother Nature. This discipline of, of Mother Nature, like, oh, we, you know, kind of we're one with, crea with, not creation, but with like Mother Nature. This tendency to like creation, I use that term, above humans, above the created, and worship it. But no, we know we're not to do that word. We are above the animals and above the earth. We are to rule and subdue it. And ultimately, creation, going out and exploring it, whatever that is, should make us look at it and then turn our eyes up to God and give him praise to the one who created it. But again, in, in the scripture here, the, the call to have dominion, to have dominion over the earth, to subdue it. Sometimes there's a charge against Christians, other people. Oh, this is just bad for the environment. They don't care about the environment. Like they have, you know, this idea of like, ah, it's ours. We can do it whatever we want and just pour, you know, acid down a hole. There's a big stereotype, big picture. <laughs> but the, reali the reality is, get this, is Christians, I think we have a proper perspective upon the environment. Christian apologist Francis Schaeffer said this, only the Christian has a proper perspective on a tree. He respects it as a tree created by God. He therefore does not condone chopping it down for the sake of just chopping it down. However, he is also free from the pagan, pagan sacred grove that you can't touch it taboos about nature. So he's quite relaxed about chopping it down to fulfill his need to build a house. At the same time, his Christian duty towards the needs of future generations means he will plant another tree to take its place. So I think in, in dominion, we also have a call for stewardship of creation. If God, hey, I made male and female, my image and likeness now, subdue the earth, have dominion over it, like care for it. And I think, so we have to have stewardship of what has been given to us. Caring and keeping our environment, not being wasteful. Like if we go hiking, we're not just, if we have garbage, we're not just like throwing it out of our pockets. We're taking it with us. It's, there's a beauty, there's a pristine there of creation. If I'm having a shower, I'm not just like turning the water on, going, doing something else for half an hour. Not only that, but it also costs so much money. <laughs> So that's not a good use of God's resources. Like if you have a campfire, you're going to put it out after you're done. I think that's good stewardship. That's, that's having dominion over the earth. 
And the list could go on and on and on. But I want you also to see this, though, this picture, this call to have dominion over the earth, the call to subdue it, is, is very different than this other extremely different worldview. It's very different than the fear-mongering, doomsday, drum-beating of climate change that has led to paper straws, carbon tax, and the aim to make everyone feel guilty who drives a gasoline or a diesel vehicle. So when we're talking about that, we're, we're not, like, caring for the earth. We're not talking about this political, politicalized phrase, climate change, which I believe is really more a facade for control and dominance. And I want you to point out to you, it's, a, it's this call, almost climate change is a call for dominion over other people, like controlling other people. And I want to point out too, in, in this call that we see here in Genesis 1, 26 to 31, of all the things we have dominion over, we're not to have dominion over other people. That is not for humans. Have dominion over the earth, dominion over the animals, subdue it, work the land. And so just thinking about that, we're talking about Genesis 1, and we know Genesis 3 happens, the fall. Right? Like Adam and Eve, they eat the fruit they weren't supposed to, and sin enters into the world, and that greatly affects the ability for humans to have dominion over the earth. Just think about some of the effects. Of course, a big one is seek to have dominion over other people. Rule over other people. I, I, as I pointed out, I think there's a tendency for animals or the earth to be lifted high and above humans. Getting it backward, worshiping the created, not the creator. For sure, we see we are broken in the way that we seek to rule and subdue. Even in our North American context, just to continue a lust for more, for more, for materialistic goods, which continue to rob and pillages resources from other places around the world in things that we know, really don't need. I would, I would encourage you to, to read and just reference. There's a book, a short story by a guy named Leo Tolstoy. It's called, How Much Land Does a Man Need? You can listen, audio version, it's like 30 minutes, amazing. Sometime I'll use it in an illustration if you want to listen to that. Leo Tolstoy, How Much Land Does a Man Need? So just as I was studying dominion and studying this passage, I was just thinking like, is it really spoken about in the rest of the Bible? And the answer is like, no, really not very much. But the passage that Zach actually read from, Psalm 8, I just want to bring your attention to that. I'm going to turn there, Psalm 8, and look at a few verses. Psalm 8, verses 5 to 9. I'm oh, sorry, starting in verse 3. David writes, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of and the son of man that you care for him? Like, think about that as you, as you look at the sun and the moon and the stars, and we're part of the Milky Way galaxy. My kids are studying that at home, and so we have this huge poster of this giant sun, and we're like, you know, the third rock from the sun, so incredibly small, and part of this massive galaxy, and I don't know how many galaxies there are. What is man that God is mindful of us, that he made us? Verse 5, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You put all things under his feet, 
all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the seas, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. And look, look how he finishes as he's reflecting on dominion, humans over creation. Verse 9, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That's the proper context of, of dominion and having of subduing the earth is like, and then looking up, O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name. But look again at verse 6 with me. It says, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. And the question I want to ask you is, do we see all things under humanity's feet right now? No, no, I don't think we do. I think we see actually a broken world with humans created in the image and likeness of God actually in rebellion against him. I think that's what we currently see. And so the question is, like, putting all things under his feet, well, when will this happen? If we're just going to turn to the New Testament, if you want to follow with, with me, I'm going to turn to Hebrews. Because the writer of Hebrews actually quoted Psalm 8 and attributed that to Jesus Christ. So what I, I just hope you can follow where I'm going. So we see we're called to have dominion over the earth. We see in Psalm 8 again this call of humans having dominion over the earth and at some point in time all things being subject under their feet. And then we're now looking at Hebrews chapter 2 verses 5 to 9 and as they quote Psalm 8 they're saying this is Jesus who is ultimately fulfilled in. Look at verse 6, sorry. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now notice what the writer of Hebrews says. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, talking about Jesus Christ, he left nothing outside his control, yet at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. One, one thing for anyone who had, has believed in Jesus Christ, we have put ourselves under subjection of Jesus' feet. That's what it means to become a Christian. You're like, you're bowing your knee to Jesus Christ. Like, you are king, Lord. I'm bowing before you. My life is yours. Do with it whatever you want. And so our lives as Christians then would come under subjection of Jesus' feet. We see here, even in this passage, Jesus redeemed fallen humanity on the cross to restore our relationship to God. We know that Christ has the victory over death and sin and the devil on the cross. Amen? But not everything is fully under his reign and rule now. We live in a broken world, and we know this to be true if we just look outside. Think of human slavery and sex trade, ch ch child abuse. The list could go on and on. We know, okay... One day, everything is going to be subject under Jesus' feet, but we're, we're not yet there. It's not yet, so where are we now? What is our call? We're in between 
for some, like the fall happened, sin entered the world. And maybe you're, you're hearing this, but you haven't yet trusted in Jesus Christ. And I would and just ex- encourage you, more than encourage you, cry out to you, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He came down to earth to live a perfect life, to die on the cross for our sins. Pay for our shame because we've all sinned against the Holy God and broke the relationship. The one who created us made us for him. But we can't have a relationship with him because sin is in the way. But Jesus came and took that upon himself, died, was buried, and rose again. And everyone who put their faith and trust in him again is bowing the knee. I'm coming under Jesus Christ. We're forgiven. We're made new. And so if you've you've done that, what are we to be about? I was going to take you to a few places, if you'll you'll allow me, uh, Matthew 28. Verses 18 to 20. This is Jesus as he's talking to his disciples. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So what do we see here? We see a call for believers to be about evangelism, telling people about Jesus Christ, the one who died for the sins of the world. Anyone who would repent and trust in him could be born again and have eternal life. We're being about evangelism. Then we're to be about discipleship, teaching the people who say, yes, I want to follow Jesus to observe everything he has taught, to be baptized in his name. Friends, if you're here, you're saying, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, and you're, you haven't been baptized, what are you waiting for? This is, you're like, yes, I will follow him. He says, okay, then be baptized. And be baptized. So we need to be about evangelism and discipleship. I just want to point out one more thing to you, or maybe a few, truth be told. Acts 1.6. This is Jesus before he ascended into heaven. His disciples are with him, and they're talking to him. And in Acts 1.6, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They were looking for the conquering king. They were looking for someone to overthrow the Roman rule. They're like, is is it going to happen now? When's it going to happen? And what did Jesus answer them? He said, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. He says, okay, it's not now to go and take land and to take rule from people, but you're going to stay here till the Holy Spirit comes upon you. When he does and he fills you, you're going to go and you're going to tell everyone you can about me. That's what we're be, to be about, Christians. If you, if you can continue to read in the book of Acts as they go throughout the land and meet with people, they're not trying to take cities for Jesus' name. They're trying to take souls for Jesus' name. Because we have eternal souls. And one day all of us are going to stand before a holy God. And our only hope is in Jesus Christ. Friends, I just want to point this out to you. Point one, one more thing out. I, I don't know about you. I'm praying for Canada. I'm praying for what's happening in Ottawa. I'm praying for what's happening in southern Alberta. I'm praying for greater freedoms in our country. 
I know in, in Manitoba currently, you can only have 25 people to meet in a gathering unless you have a vaccine passport. That's not right. We need freedoms to worship the Lord. But friends, let me tell you, and I, and I know God bless many of your efforts to make change in many of these various channels in which we have either provincially or federally or even in our own city. May the Lord bless your efforts, but I want to just point out to you something from the, the Canadian Coat of Arms. On the Coat of Arms of Canada, there's, there's a ribbon in it which takes its phrase from the Order of Canada. I guess it's the second highest order for decorations and awards. It's in Latin, and what it says is desiring a better country. And it's taken from Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11, verse 16. I just want to bring this before your attention. In Hebrews 11, 9, talking about Abraham, by faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. He's like, this place is not my home. I'm looking further ahead. And looking in verse 13, those all died of faith. All the patriarchs, they didn't receive land. They were always looking ahead, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear they are seeking a homeland. They are not seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. On the coat of arms of Canada, this phrase, desiring a better country, desiring a heavenly country. That is to be our desire. And of course, you probably already know the motto that is found on that coat, the, the motto from sea to sea. And that's taken from Psalm 72, verse 8, and it says, May he, that's God, may he have dominion from sea to sea. And from the river to the ends of the earth. Isn't that our prayer? Isn't that what we're crying out to God? That he would have dominion from the sea to sea in Canada. But friends, I want to tell you, even if we change prime ministers, even if we change who's in government in Alberta, that will not give him dominion from sea to sea. We need souls saved, people to hear about Jesus Christ. That is our hope. We need to pray for revival. And friends, if we pray for revival, we need to pray, Lord, bring revival in me. Start with me first. Oh, Lord, we would pray that everything would come under our Lord Jesus Christ. Our desires, that our mouth, everything. Lord, take the words of my mouth and be pleasing to you. My eyes and my ears, the things that I, I put in front, they would be good and pure. My hands, that you bless the work of my hands when we pray this. Our relationships, we ought to love others as Jesus Christ loves. May you have dominion from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth, friends. 
but that we first pray, Lord, do this in me. Every area, Lord, search my heart. Reveal the darkness that's inside of me. And cleanse me by the blood of Jesus Christ. It needs to start with each one of us. Revive our hearts. And then if the Lord would be so kind to revive us, like, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Lord, have our houses, have our children. And then friends, if we want him to have dominion from sea to sea, we need to reach people, friends, family members, neighbors with the gospel. Tell them the love of Jesus Christ. We need to pray and, and look to share and pray and look to connect and pray for courage. Lord, give us boldness to make your name known at this time. Everything is shaking. People are broken. They're looking. And I'm still, I'm praying that there will be change in Ottawa. I'm praying there'll be change in Alberta. But as it happens, friends, as Christians, our mission is still the same. The main thing we need to be about is the gospel. May you have dominion from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. But first, Lord, have all of me. So I pray that you could see in this text we are made in the image of God. It's very good. I hope our, our purpose in him is made clear. God's blessing, be fruitful and multiply. It's very good. God's provision, he provides for us. Give him thanks. God's call, dominion as Christians for his dominion over us. And as we await Christ's second coming, for our, our call to share our faith with those we can while we can. If you'll bow with me as we close this word in prayer. Oh, Lord. I pray that you would do that work in us. Do that work in me. Oh, Lord. Shine your holy light. Show me the areas, Lord, that are hidden. Cleanse me, cleanse us from our sin, O oh Lord. Reveal to us the hidden areas that we're holding from you, Lord. Revive our hearts that we would be used by you at this time to make your name known in Canada, in Alberta, in Red Deer, in our workplaces, in our homes. Oh Lord, use us, fill us with your spirit, send us out, give us courage and boldness, Lord, I pray that you be glorified and honored in this land. Seal this word in our hearts, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.